Hello, everyone. I'm Adam Bidwell, Head of Small Cap Equity Sales at Investec, and I'm delighted to be joined here today by Andy Bruff, who's been a fund manager for over 30 years and heads up the pan-European small and mid-cap team at Schroeder's. Today, we're going to be exploring some of Andy's perspectives on the current state of the IPO and London market. Thanks very much for joining us, Andy, um, for our IPO uh, podcast chat. Um, so just to open up, I'd like to ask you your views on the post-COVID economy and what areas of the market look fully or, or undervalued at the moment. The whole thing about this post-COVID economy is we've had so much sort of pent-up uh, savings. We haven't been able to go out. Uh, people haven't been travelling anywhere. And now we're all struggling around uh, in the fund management community in particular, and probably on your side of the fence as well, trying to work out what is the new normal. Because suddenly we've seen a big increase. Everyone's suddenly gone out and started splurging. There's sort of 400 billion of excess deposits. You can't buy a new car for level money. You can't find a builder. Where have all the workers gone? So it's quite hard to kind of work out where we are and what, what are things going to look like next year. And are you finding it difficult to assess how lumpy earnings have been and how much of a sort of COVID kicker some companies have had and, you know, what the kind of normal earnings might be going forward? This is the point, you know, normal earnings, you know, so I'm old fashioned, you know, EBITDA or something didn't exist when I started. So I'm strictly a sort of PE man. And so I kind of take the amount of profit the company's generated after tax and divide it by the, the earnings to get, get a number. Um, and now, of course, what's happened is all these companies that have been exposed to the COVID, uh, particularly leisure and transport, have increased their number of share counts you know, by 50, 100 percent in some cases. So it's going to be very, very hard for those companies, share prices to ever get back uh, in my investing career and probably yours to the prices they were beforehand. Because and then you've got, you know, I'll talk to my team. Uh, well, we're coming in three days a week. Well, actually, if you're if you're a bus and train company, that's a sort of forty percent reduction, and and then you've got all the, the, how that knocks on elsewhere. So it's very hard to really get a feeling for how this is all going to pan out. And what we're trying to do is just stay with those companies that are kind of, if you like, guided their way through without having to substantially increase their share count and dilute the earnings going forward. So then I was going to ask you about the key market themes and trends you're seeing at the moment. Obviously, the most obvious one is, you know, all online businesses have had it off for the last 12 months. That's clearly an obvious point. But I just wonder if there's any other key themes, the beneficiaries and what's playing out in the IPO market at the moment. We've all been kind of fed the, the cheap piece of benefits of the global supply chain, goods from China, etc., and that sort of almost disappeared overnight. I mean, I was talking to Marshalls the other day, and it's costing them more to rent a container from India than the value of the goods inside. And you think, well, you know, okay, if the end if the end customer is willing to pay for that, that's fine. But there's going to be a lot of companies who are reliant on supply chains, which, when they've been put under this much stress, have uh, are going to come under pressure. And it's quite interesting. We've seen a number of floats. In that space, particularly in online fashion for both maternity wear and, you know, all these people who claim they've got sort of influences, et cetera, et cetera. But actually what we've seen is the pressure on the supply chains means that the margins they were banking on aren't coming through because costs are coming up. So we're trying to look at those companies who are in a better position to either absorb these increased costs or, if you like, have sort of onshore manufacturing, which enables them to actually hopefully navigate their way through. 
So do you give companies the benefit of the doubt if perhaps they are seeing depressed earnings or headwinds from either costs or shipping or freight or, you know, even labour costs or these sorts of inflations? Do you give them the benefit of the doubt on these headwinds at the moment? Well, the problem is, Bidders, is that um, I might give them the benefit of the doubt, but uh, the other 99.9% of the market don't. And so uh, any disappointment is immediately reflected in a share price down 20 30% with everyone scratching their heads. And, you know, we've had conversations, you're phoning me up saying, I can't believe the share price move, it's not that bad. You know, if that's the trouble with the market. You know, the market is always irrational. You just hope it's, it's sort of more irrational in your favour at times than others. And so people have just decided that, you know, that's a permanent scarring. You know, AO World the other day, massive beneficiary of COVID, came out with their results. People went, oh, that's not very good, is it? So it's very hard for a management team to, you know, actually please the market all the time. So the winners of COVID are now seen as the losers and the losers are maybe seen as potentially the winners of the future. You know, who would have thought that we're sitting here and we're in a situation where you can't buy a new car because you can't, there's not enough chips and uh, car dealers are making more money by keeping the cars on their forecourt than uh, they would by selling them. You know, we're in a strange world. Strange times indeed. And um, any observations on the current wave of um, IPOs at the moment? I mean, I hear there's a stupid amount of IPOs around the well, both UK and European market. Are you noticing any trends or um, any observations on those types of companies? What I really love about the IPO market is that when the market suddenly falls out of bed because some Chinese property company has gone bust, et cetera, et cetera, then companies say, I'm sorry, the conditions aren't right for us to float which we can translate is we can't actually get the highest price we possibly can or the advisors promised us. And so we're going to wait. And then when they float, no one says, right, so now you're floating because the market conditions are amazing and you're getting the highest price possible. You know, I think people forget that you know, when they come to the stock market, it's the start of the journey, not the end. Uh, when I started, there was a, a guy, David Mayhew, who ran Casino, and uh, he used to work out the price for an IPO on his own. Nothing like an early look, nothing like, you know, phoning up all these people. To me once, he said, look, my job, Andy, is to get my client the best possible share register at the best price. And he could do that on his own because he had a balanced view. A book runner in those days was someone who actually kind of worked for the Royal Mail. It wasn't someone who kind of collected orders. And you had two people involved in the pricing. Now you've got all these people involved. And it's quite interesting, when I look at what Wise did, I, I wonder if that's going to catch on, whereby you just rock up and you say, right, tell us what you think the shares are worth, um, and we'll price it accordingly. It is a dilemma in that, actually, you know, the institutions want a price where they can make money, uh, the companies want a price where they think they're getting a good shareholder register, the private equity, particularly the sellers, want a price that actually maximises their return to their investors, meaning they can then go and launch a new fund. So you've got far more conflicts now involved in the process. And you know, we're looking for companies that are coming to the market saying, look, this is the start of the journey. You know, we're raising some money because we want to go and invest. We're not all running for the exit because you know, we're in this for the long term. And actually, you know, we'd like to see more companies like that coming to the market. And in the past, people have talked about sort of IPO windows in the market being the right time to float businesses. And the response from a lot of people is always, you know, if it's a good company coming in the right valuation, the IPO market's always open. But, you know, going back, um, you know, many years, there's been periods of, you know, sort of one, two years where it's been almost impossible to get, um, you know, to IPOs away. 
that said, the last few years, there's been a pretty good environment for these kind of deals to get done. So I just wonder if the overall environment's changed and good companies are always going to get away as long as they're valued correctly. The point you make is right. You know, it all comes down to value. You know, what, what are you prepared to pay for, for this company? And you know, companies, in some ways, they look at all the sort of comparisons around the world. They, they find the highest price comparison in some obscure market that no one's heard of and say, right, you know, we should be priced accordingly like that. But um, I think if I was floating on the stock market, I'm not suggesting I'm going to suddenly launch myself on the market. You kind of look at it and say, right, OK, I want a price where people can make money from. I want a price that isn't going to make me stay awake at night because I've set myself unrealistic targets. And, you know, I want to go on the journey with other people. And, you know, the uh, guy called Peter Mead who ran Abbott Mead because he yeah, had a lovely phrase for it. You know, he said, look, everyone has to leave the party with a balloon. So I might be sitting in a room with the advisors and everything and say, right, who's got a balloon? And if not everyone's putting their hands up, then why's anyone going to turn up to the next party? And do you mind me asking what your, if you have any strong views on, on SPACs? Obviously, the US has seen a wave of SPACs with, um, I think, very mixed um, you know, fortunes. We've seen sort of some slightly different structure here on, you know, special purpose acquisition companies. But I just wonder if you had any any view on whether we're missing a trick here, whether we're sort of better off without them or, or at least much fewer of them. When I first heard the word SPAC and I kind of looked into them, I thought SPAC stood for special pain are coming. That's kind of been borne out, isn't it? You know, it's, it was designed for the hedge funds where they could put up their money, take it out immediately, keep their warrants and have a free carry. And it's worked fantastically well for them. But how Kazoo could be worth eight, $8 billion and sell as many cars as Virtue sell in a month is beyond me. But as I said, the market's always irrational and sometimes it's against you. But you know, to me, SPACs have just been created for the hedge fund community to, and as a clever vehicle to blindside the traditional long-only fund managers. Um, we mentioned earlier about the wave of, of IPOs coming, um, and we've also seen a lot of U- UK public company takeovers. Do you think we need to see these coming continue to come thick and fast in order to, you know, continue to fund these these deals? And do you still see, you know, lots of UK public company takeovers happening? The UK equity market is shrinking. You know, we all know there's a hundred companies in the FTSE 100 because the clues in the name. But with the 250, there's about 184 companies. The rest are investment trusts. In the small cap, there's 129 companies. In fact, including investment trusts, there's more investment trusts in the FTSE small cap than there are companies. So if I add all those together, that would mean during my investing career that number that the market is more than halved in number. Okay, I said aims come up on the sidelines, but you know the main market is the really area where the health is. And I think what you need to do is you need to have more companies in the main indices because that's the, the ones that typically we're paid to, to, to match, to beat. And what you're looking at is, you know, a thriving equity market has to have you know, a lot of companies coming to it. Now, it's going to be very interesting with the rules changing. Now, obviously, the hut was looking like it was going to be nailed on to go into the FTSE 100. Uh, given its price move, it might be lucky to get into the 250. But you're going to have things like, you know, Deliveroo and all these things coming into the index. And everyone goes, that's fantastic. It's going to be modern. We're losing BHP Billiton potentially to Australia. That's 131 billion. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a great fan of companies coming in and out of the index. You know, one of my areas I, I manage is the FTSE 250. And we actually call that the Heineken index because it gets refreshed like no other index. You know, every year you've got like sort of 30 changes 
companies coming in, companies going out. And that, that's always a factor. What we've got to avoid as industry, our side, is selling companies to private equity and then buying them back. You know, because that is the, that's just an arbitrage with debt that you've got that I haven't got. So, you know, Premier, we sell Premier Foods to uh, Hick Muse and then they try and sell it back to us. And they sell it back to us and the share price goes down by 70%. We've all got a vested interest in winning here. But unless we all win together, then some people are going to win for a bit and then we're going to refuse to deal with you. And the whole thing sort of breaks down. But a consensus approach on something which yeah, most people spend their evenings watching Wall Street is very impossible. It's very difficult to do. People always want yeah. to prove, yeah, we were right. We got a better price for that. You know, but that's not the game. The game is this is the start of the journey. We're right together. Private equity, you sell some, you've given a bit on the upside. You know, Fever Tree, which is a brilliant float by you lot. Uh, that's the only paid effort I'm going to do. All right. Is um, you know, classic case floats, raises the capital, and then they, they exit gradually into rising prices. And everyone feels it's been a great success. Even though shares have come off a bit and it's had its odd wobble. But if you look back, everyone goes, yeah, it's a great success. That is a great success. Changing tax slightly, but um, how important do you think sort of ESG is when making investment decisions? I guess this conversation we're talking about IPOs. So how, how much of a crucial factor is that both for you and, and the wider market? Well, ESG is very much uh, flavour of the month, isn't it? I mean, I look at the number of ESG people we've got. Schroders, you know, we've got a lot of ESG and taking it very seriously. And it's becoming more and more important. You know, the whole governance thing, what sort of board have you got? Have you got the right sort of expertise? Have you got the mixture? Uh, have you got diversity of thought? You know, sustainability, it's quite hard to measure. It's quite hard to measure, isn't it? You know, I've talked to Julian Duncanton at Super, Super Dry, who, you know, you read their results, they mentioned sustainability nine times. And then we get into a conversation about organic cotton, and apparently it uses less water. I asked him if it was less thirsty. That's where the conversation ended. Again, you know, how far down, how far back down the supply chain do you want to go to measure these things? So ESG is incredibly important, but it's still in its infancy in how it's being measured because, you know, it's still easy. And we've seen it, and we, with these greenwashings, etc. People are gaming the system. What we want is companies to say, look, this is what we're doing. This is how we've measured it. You know, is it right or is it wrong? But this is this is our best attempt. This is the structure we put in for the board um, in terms of governance, in terms of earnings, in terms of targets. And we think these are sufficiently hard to meet that if they meet them, they deserve these sort of bonuses. But ESG is only going to get a louder and louder voice going forward. And that's, you know, that's fair. Completely agree. And I, I think that, you know, as you say, it is the, the topic of conversation. It's, everyone's considering it. But I think also... Um, we perhaps haven't seen the same weight of capital following into it. So there's perhaps more noise than there is capital. Obviously, I'm sure the capital will follow in time. But e even for sort of generalist funds and in inverted commas, the ESG element is becoming a, a bigger and bigger consideration. And even if you don't have, um, you know, actual defined parameters with which you need to operate, you, you've got to understand that the rest of the market does. So, you know, you'll be fighting against a, a bit of a tide if it's not a, a consideration for you. The, acid, the key test for ESG is going to be when people start losing money. Completely agree. Um, a couple of macro questions. Um, how are the potential changes to monetary policy influencing your investment decisions at the moment, if at all? I think we're in a, I think we're in a sort of monetary policy position, which reminds me, um, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that, quite that old to remember Voltaire from 1767. Uh, and Voltaire in 1767 famously said, paper money always returns to its intrinsic value. 
the speed at which you're sort of printing this money. Now, during the great financial crisis, they printed the money, it went to the banks because they had to repair their balance sheets, and it never really seeped into the real economy. Yeah. This time around, pandemic, they printed loads of money. I mean, you look at the bank results today, no one's writing up anything. You know, non-performing loans are just, well, where are they? The banks took huge provisions, they haven't come through. And then, so everyone's awash with liquidity. They're looking for a home. You know, is it cryptos? Is it NFTs? And so my big worry is that inflation, inflation itself doesn't know it's transitory. We're all, we're all telling it, inflation, you're transitory. Inflation, on the other hand, saying, I'm not sure I am. You know, I might be here for a while, actually. In fact, I'm quite enjoying myself. And you get in a position whereby people are just demanding higher and higher pay, pay rises. You, know, you, you read people, 50 grand a year to pick broccoli. I mean, it's not a bad gig, is it? I mean, because prices come through. And that's my big worry. We start to see inflation. The government, the Bank of England, cannot put up interest rates. And so we end up in a situation which we were in after the uh, Second World War, where we end up with financial repression. And what do I mean by that? Well, you're not getting any money on your savings and inflation is eating away. That is not a recipe for sort of happy times, really. So we're looking at it, and it comes back to what I said earlier about the supply chain, is how can, how can you pass on your costs? If you're a discount retailer, then you're in, a, you're in a better position to put up a pair of socks from £4.50 to five quid than you are perhaps if you're selling a sort of luxury item at 50 quid, and you've got to stick it up to 65 quid just to cover the costs. Completely agree. And, um, and then just perhaps to finish, your expectations for equity markets for the remainder of this year and into next year? I appreciate it's a, it's a massive question, but I'm keen to hear your thoughts. The big debate, isn't it, that um, has been in equity markets probably for the last 10 years, really. Are you a growth investor or are you a value investor? And growth investors have had the most marvellous time as interest rates have come down, bond yields have come down and PEs have expanded. And people have gone, you know what, it's a new paradigm, the world's changing. And the market to me kind of feels like it did when it was the last quarter of 99, first quarter of 2000, and that people have sort of bet the ranch on a lot of these new economy stocks. And when we turned the millennium, they all sort of realised that actually it's going to be a lot harder. So I think in the market at the moment, you've got a lot of expensive companies. And I look at the FTSE 100 and you think, everyone goes, yeah, it's dull and boring. I think, well, actually, you know what? Banks trading at half book, no, no loans. That looks quite a good place to be for me. Oil price looks like it's probably going to stay up. That's not going to be, energy is probably a good place to be. And on the whole, I would have thought the FTSE could actually break out now, on the 100 to the upside. And, you know, we've spent 20 years getting from 7,000 to 7,100. But I think, you know, in the next two years, we could get to 8,000 because of the shift of the companies within it and their earnings potential. And then you've got to look at what's happening in the 250 and the small cap. 250, you've got a lot of financials in there. So you're probably going to be OK. You know, it's probably going to come back. If property comes back, it's very good news for the small cap index or 20% of the index. Not a bad inflation hedge. So, you know, I'm on, the, I'm on Twitter these days, so I kind of follow what people are saying. And uh, at the end of last week, people are going, oh my God, you know, this is it. Has anyone else checked their portfolio? And I just tweeted, look, I'm just about to enter my 132nd quarter of running money. Uh, I've survived this long by not looking when I know I'm having a bad day, right? This is, it, the whole thing is a confidence game and you've got to stay high enough up the risk curve. So whichever company you're looking at, you know, you've got to be prepared to say, right, okay, 
you know, could the banks reinvent themselves and take on Klarna and Wise Group and actually transform themselves into new vehicles? Could BP and Shell suddenly use this super profits they're making to become the, the winners in the whole renewable space? You know, in the mid-cap land, what's going to happen to some of these you know, internet-only retailers as they might change on business rates? So wherever it is, you try to pick out the companies that are going to benefit. But for me, I think the market is more likely to go up and down. So we'd just like to say a big thanks to Andy Bruff, head of Pan-European Small and Mid-Cap at Schroders for his time today. We do hope you found the session interesting. If you'd like to discuss anything you've heard today in more detail, then please do get in touch. Thank you.